Oh, yeah. Yeah. we were just saying that our reptilian overlords had had, had crashed your um your router. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think the I think the red raptors are uh, are descending on us. Not the blue, not the good blue raptors. Yeah, definitely the Martian raptors yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I was like, are, are we frozen? Or are you guys just really into this story? Um, <laughs> both, both was the answer. <laughs> the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Ronick in Frederick, New Brunswick, and I'm joined, as I am every fortnight, by Ken Holyoke there in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Well, Gabe, I am looking out the window at some snow, and and I will warn the listener that we are delving into the first of a two-part episode on pseudo-archaeology, and one of our co-hosts is perpetuating a, pseudo- a, a myth uh, as we speak. Uh, he is coming to you live, not from Fredericton. He is coming to you live from his office in New Hampshire. And and uh, Gabe, I am I am shocked. I am shocked that you would do something like this to our listener. Ken, uh, this is just a simulacrum. I don't know what the problem is. You, you think it's pseudo-archaeology. <laughs> I think it's savvy archaeological theory. And uh, as the listener will know, at some point, either in the future or in the past, who knows, even knows what it is anymore, that you're a time lord, so there's no possibility that, uh, <laughs> that we've stepped outside of the uh, out of the time space continuum here. Um, but we've got a very special show for the uh, the listener today uh, about, as you mentioned, pseudo archaeology, um, and uh, we are uh, sponsored as uh, we are by the Association of this this p this it's a sneaky p i think they call it but it's not for pseudo it's for professional in this case archaeologists in Brunswick. yeah and uh and uh we thank them very much for their sponsorship um ken if uh, if the listener uh wanted to think about a way to rename this podcast and rename this this podcast in a way that there's nothing pseudo about it just like a real bona fide new name for this podcast that didn't invoke, you know, aliens or Atlantis or uh, space lasers or anything like that. Uh, where would they email that name to? They were they would send it to the 100% truth verified, uh, truth social perpetuated uh, New Brunswick Archaeology <laughs> at, g- at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> maybe truth social not not verified at uh it's it's uh, verified on x i guess they get the blue check mark uh on that one uh yeah, we're not Archeolo- on x listener no we're not actually uh or truth Archeolo- social actually we should mention <laughs> just for the sake of <laughs> Uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. That's archaeology spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. And actually looking into the listener mail right now in that email address, um, before we get to our uh, our prize read this week, um, we do have one piece of listener mail. Um, and I've lost it. There we go. And it's from our, our frequent listener, Wally. And it says, uh, on that VT Rama point, so talking about Vermont Rama points. Uh, do you I think the, the Hanley projectile, it, it looks fluted, Hanley projectile point from Vermont. So we, was that with uh, Matt? We talked about that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, dear Ken and Gabe, great ep- new episode as always. It's always heartening to hear 
that not all the big questions have been answered yet. I hope to. I hope you do invite Matt Betts back for another guest episode soon, and we hope he will be back as well. Um, I was surprised to hear, though, that Gabe couldn't remember where in Vermont the Rama point, Paleo Point comes from, considering <laughs> Loring's 60-ish page article about, its, about it is an assigned reading in one of his courses. <laughs> for the record, it was found by a Milton-based uh, collector somewhere in northern Vermont, Today, the point is housed in the Smithsonian, but there's a nice cast of it at Echo in Burlington. What is Echo? Oh, cool. I don't know. Something. Uh, so, Wally, if you want to write back, uh, you can tell us what Echo is in Burlington. Burlington. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing the listeners should know about Wally is that is that Wally is the kind of student that actually reads all 60 pages of a 60-page article about <laughs> Vermont archaeology and then remembers them in, in slavish detail. So thank you, Wally. <laughs> <laughs> and so so gabe in the spirit of the season um uh this episode will be dropping uh 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 as we lead into the uh the uh into the halloween uh kind of Wait, so uh, can I, I don't think i tipped off the reader the listener on why we're doing this which is that if they rename the podcast yeah yeah if they if they rename the podcast this is uh, this yeah. is the prize that they could be in store for yeah, well, we did this uh, in a weird order because we're in the time-space continuum, and and so you sort of cut in on the listener mail, which ordinarily I introduce, but um, that's oh okay. yeah, yeah, we're we're all shook up here. Um, yeah, my feelings are not hurt. It's because we're doing these things in the wrong order, listener. But stay cool, everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if the listener doesn't realize that Gabe and I actually had a conversation before we went to air that. The the way in which we have scheduled these uh, uh, these interviews and recording the preamble as uh, uh, post hoc um, has actually uh, caused confusion in both our schedules and how we present the flow of the information to you, listener. And so, if yeah. things we're doing the preamble little... as post amble actually is the is <laughs> yeah. the confusion here. <laughs> So but ordinarily, Ken, uh, I, I would say something about uh, and, and where would the listener send that prize winning uh, new name for this podcast? And you would they say New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. But since we're working backwards, what I'm instead going to say is the listener might notice that we still do not have a new name for this podcast. If they had that new name, Ken, where would they send it? <laughs> new Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. And if they were the lucky uh, prize winner this week, Ken, what would they win? Well, so it's in the spirit of the season, Gabe, as we, as we head into the Halloween uh, weekend, um, we have both, season, a, which is a, the holiest of seasons among anthropology undergraduates. I've learned exactly. We have both a trick and a treat for you tonight, listener. So, so Gabe, do you do you like to dress up? And for Halloween, uh, Gabe, <laughs> this is a family program. This is a family program. Let's. Uh, well, you know, Ken, I don't think I've dressed up for Halloween since I went as Alden Nolan that one year you and I ended up at the very weird Christmas party as graduate students near the university. Well, we're gonna you're gonna have to don your field regalia and doff your fedora um, because we're gonna be setting off with one lucky listener on an adventure uh, into an evening filled with treats while we explore the downtown plat of historic Fredericton. No kidding. Yeah. Yes, listener, you're gonna prepare your adventurous soul as we learn about the long history of the city itself some of the recent archaeology that's gone on downtown and descended to the mysteri mysterious histories and stories that shape what your capital city is today. Yes, uh, Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones will have a canvas crossbody of goodies to keep you sated throughout the evening. But as we wind our way up the hill, the trick is going to come at you. 
Stark reality is going to set in, and after that long, enjoyable day in the field, we'll be sitting down to the real job of the archaeologist that they don't show on TV, where for the next eight hours, you'll be drawing what the uh, you'll be finishing up the drawing that you started. You're going to finalize your notes for the day. You're then going to decipher the field notes of a student from an excavation 50 years ago. You're going to correlate some bags with worn labels and shaky provenience, drawings smeared by water and the occasional blood of mosquito, and most horrific of all, unpacking, cleaning, and organizing the 8,000 nails recovered from a mid-19th century barn, now in various stages of oxidation. This prize package will bring you all the joys of deciphering a grail diary and leave you wishing for a Kali Ma of your own, if you can name the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. That's right, listener. You thought only Indiana Jones could be heartless, but also the prizes on this podcast can be heartless. <laughs> and uh, so, Ken, for the 18th time this intro, since we're all discombobulated, where would the lucky listener send the wind to finally find themselves on the Fredericton Platt uh, sorting nails? Uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail, gmail.com. That is New Brunswick Archaeology, archaeology spelled A R C H A E O L O G Y. New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. That's right. Listener FCIC approved. Some restrictions may apply. And we are told also that there is still some Eco4 money left on the table, as they say in Atlantic City. Um, our friend Trevor Dow has let us know that there are still, um, there's a third prize draw that's still available. Um, for a listener who fills out a, um, a, uh, archaeology, a New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast bingo card. Yep. Um, it, with the, you know, according to like bingo rules, you need the, you know, all on the line or blackout. And um, if you submit those, we'll enter you, enter you into a draw for, I think, the last Ecofor swag. Yeah. And uh, hopefully more swag to come sometime soon. And so yeah. I think the listener, if you go to our Instagram page, maybe we will repost that uh, those bingo cards or the link to them. Um, and uh, you can have an opportunity or you can reach out to us and we will email you a copy of your of a bingo card. Um, and you can go back through the, uh, the, the back catalog now of 20 plus episodes of the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast uh, and uh, and pick up on all of those bingo cues. That's right. And um, the listener will notice that, that Ken and I have gone through this uh, first, this intro in somewhat uh, bewilderment because we you used to do these um, as if time were a straight arrow. <laughs> and since we're not doing that, now that time is not a straight arrow, um, one of the things that, that we just sort of wanted to thank you for was we really appreciate that um, all of you have tuned in for our first 20 episodes. It's been a lot of fun for uh, for Ken and me. And um, one of the things that we've actually really appreciated is our interaction with you via email or via Instagram. And so it's been it's been kind of a thrill to just get to know folks or even to run into people and find out that they're listeners of the podcast. Um, so thanks. We really appreciate it. Um, and we would also love to hear more about what you want to hear on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We would love to hear from you. You can send us emails. Uh, you can send us messages. I think you could probably direct message our, you can slide into our DMs on, on Instagram or, uh, or even comment on any of our posts. Um, and we're happy to, as you can probably guess this, uh, we have a number of sort of ideas for themes and guests that we want to get on the show. Um, you maybe know an archaeologist that you'd like to hear talk about a particular topic. Um, you may want to hear us just talk about a particular topic again. Um, and, you know, we, we, we kind of, 
uh, drove through all the culture history last season, but uh, 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 what the what the listener may have picked up on in those two hour plus episodes is that uh, uh, Gabe and I scratch the surface and enjoy thoroughly enjoy talking about these topics, and so it's always fun for us to revisit that, um, particularly in the light of you know both of us doing ongoing research um, and maybe be able to add new pieces into that as as we can. Um, see with the sort of the hot uh, uh, hot production in, in Northeast uh, publication this fall too, that there there's new pieces always being added to this puzzle. Yeah, that's right. Listener, I scratched the surface, Ken Axer F's the circuit surface, uh, and he has uh, just tipped off that we're about to have another weird time travel moment because we need to do hit pieces on not the episode we've just introduced, but on a different episode. No, it's this episode. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is this episode. Are you sure? It is. So what yeah. you... Okay, fantastic. Well, listener, Ken is about to climb into that time one machine. <laughs> we should probably tell the listener what they're getting in for. It's so uh, upcoming. <laughs> upcoming, we have a even if interview with Stephanie Holmhofer, who's a an expert on on pseudo archaeology, and and as we hinted at at the start of this episode, this is the first of a two part. Um, which may become three parts, uh, but but at this point, it is a two-part episode on pseudo-archaeology, where this episode, we're going to be talking broadly about what pseudo-archaeology is, um, some of the strategies that you can use to um, combat it um, and and sort of inform people about uh, um, uh, if they've gotten, if they've engaged with pseudo-archaeology or if they're sort of exposed to it. Um, and importantly, too, um, we talk about uh, uh, Brother 12, uh, uh, sort of a unique uh, example of of uh, a pseudo archaeological past being having real archaeology applied to it today by uh, in Stephanie's own research, and then um, uh, and we'll be following that up with some some closer to home pseudo archaeology cases in the uh, in the next fortnight. I'll tell you what, Daryl Kalman on about um, Oak Island. Yeah. So that's right, listener. Um... Now that we are uh, we're resituated in time, Ken's gonna make that swooshing sound that he often uh, often makes, <laughs> and we're gonna disappear. Dun, 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 dun. Welcome back, listener. Uh, uh, and I guess we're not welcoming you back. You've been here the whole time. Um, we are we are still on the radio. Uh, you did not just jump forward and jump backwards in time. And we are joined. But don't touch that dial. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, uh, we are joined tonight by PhD student, uh, University of Alberta graduate student, um, uh, Stephanie Hompoffer, uh, who's joining us from British Columbia. Is that correct? That so, is. Yep. South coast we, of BC. Yeah. So we're okay. coast to coast, uh, tonight, uh, on your, on nice. your listening dial. Um, and so, uh, Stephanie is a PhD student in the department of anthropology at University of Alberta. Um, she's a, an affiliate of the Institute of Prairie Indigenous Archaeology. Um, Stephanie and I go back to uh, the Northwest Coast Lab in the northwest corner of the fifth floor at U of T, where she was <laughs> finishing up her master's degree with Gary Copeland, and I was just starting my PhD. Um, she has a background in bioarchaeology, uh, and she her MA was on uh, a fur trade archaeology site uh, that was a burial on the West Coast in the Sunshine Coast area, um, specifically glass beads from a burial context. And your current PhD project is centered on pseudo-archaeology, uh, the far right, and a character who I was unfamiliar with until today named Brother 12, who, uh, who we're going to come back to later in the interview. Um, and, uh, and I think she's piqued our interest, both, both Gabe and I. So 
Um, Stephanie has published. Yeah, I said we spent Google. a while online checking this out. After <laughs> yeah, hearing yeah. About this. We, yeah. We, we've exhausted our Google searches, so now we yeah, we need to yeah. go to the source. Uh, <laughs> Stephanie's published in the International Journal of Cultural Property, Unbound, a journal of digital scholarship, the SAA Archaeological Record, Sapiens Magazine, which is a Wintergrand Foundation magazine, uh, and in science as well. Uh, she also maintains uh, the Bone Stones and Books website. Uh, she has a blog and Twitter account, which we will promo towards the end of the show. But it, she can be found, I guess, on it's called X now, uh, at cult underscore Archaeo. Um, and uh, her website is bonesstonesandbooks.com. And uh, uh, I don't think this is by a long shot your first podcast. Uh, you've you've been a contributor to CBC and a bunch of other shows, um, and uh, and you're doing the circuit talking about uh, pseudo archaeology and the dark places on the internet that uh, that archaeology sometimes goes. So welcome to the show, Stephanie, and thank you for thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you for having me on to talk about what I call the archaeology of highly cursed content uh, in the very dark places on the internet. Absolutely. Which has nothing to do with my master's, um, degree at all, which was, yeah, looking at blown glass beads. Um, I have yet to come across any pseudo-archaeological theories involving blown glass beads. So there's still time. There's still Small time. Blessings yeah. Indeed. Yeah. We appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me and for listing all these things that I've done. That makes me sound really cool. And I really appreciate that. Hey, uh, uh, it's we were we were completely impressed. We we also got a little bit nervous when we saw your podcast record. And we were like, "Uh oh, like <laughs> <laughs> she's going to listen but, back to the show and realize we just don't do this right, do we? <laughs> yeah. But we also thought, well, maybe she can help us with some tips on how to how to set our microphones correctly. We, <laughs> yeah, we, we have this ongoing issue where we don't really know what gain does, but uh, but it made the it made the uh, Gabe's headphones uh, so loud. <laughs> on our last episode he couldn't he couldn't hear me talking and and in a rare occasion uh he was talking over me which never happens so that's uh so <laughs> we'll, tr we'll try to minimize that tonight yeah but I, i'm gonna seize a quick opportunity here stephanie so i, I think mm -hmm. um one of the things that we were we wanted to ask you about um which is to sort of start off with with what is pseudo-archaeology and how does it distinguish itself from just archaeology that's incorrect or or otherwise wrong Right. Yeah. Because, you know, miscorrect or incorrect archaeology or, or misrepresentations or, or misinterpretations, it happens. Right. And and we learn and we, you know, move on as we have more information. So I think that's a really good question is what distinguishes pseudoarch from just general misinterpretations. Um, for, you know, for a long time, people have been talking about pseudoarch for, for a long time, for several decades. And they've kind of come up with this list of, of various characteristics that define it. And for me personally, um, because of course, as archaeologists, we can't agree on just one thing. Um, so for me personally, I sort of took together, I'm, I'm just scrolling up to my actual thing here, so I don't mess up my own thing. Um, I took a bunch of different characteristics developed by archaeologists um, long before I did. And, and I also started to notice that there's like a really strong conspiratorial element to pseudo-archaeology. And that, to me at least, is is the most important characteristic is the most defining characteristic. Misinterpretations happen. But if you start saying that, oh, instead of, you know, taking responsibility, like, oh, I misinterpreted, there's new evidence. If you start suddenly saying, well, no, somebody's actually hiding the truth and they're suppressing this and they don't want this to get out. That's something different than a misrepresentation or a misinterpretation. So to me, at least, pseudo-archaeology, I define it as being speculative and alternative claims made about human history that use archaeological knowledge. They use bits and pieces of, of facts 
Um, but they rely on a matter of faith rather than a matter of proof. Uh, and they willfully and they deliberately downplay any sort of contradictory archaeological knowledge under this guise of something called stigmatized knowledge. That's something that comes from Michael Barkin, a political scientist, um, which is what sort of places pseudo-archaeology into the same realm as conspiracy theories. So for me, at least that conspiratorial element is is the most important characteristic, and it sort of also helps ex explain why we see pseudo-arc popping into a lot of other very conspiratorial spaces um, like QAnon or old-fashioned New World Order conspiracy theories, that kind of thing. So, so um, you had mentioned stigmatized knowledge. I, I, um, and so could you sort of build on that? What, what exactly is stigmatized knowledge? And, and I know uh, the example that you gave us, uh, you used QAnon as sort of a perfect example of what stigmatized knowledge is. Yeah, stigmatized knowledge. So it comes from this political scientist, Michael Barkin, um, who sort of was, he started to notice that conspiracy theories were becoming linked with seemingly very disconnected things like uh, new age spirituality and very radical political ideologies and all sorts of things were kind of all coming together into these globs of things. Um, and so he started looking for ways to explain it. He came up with this idea of, of the stigmatized knowledge claims. So stigmatized knowledge claims are, are claims of truth or, or what the claimants say are true, despite not being verified by knowledge validating institutions. So like a university or a museum or some other scientific body is like, actually, that's that's not true. The claimants will say it's true and then say that they are being you know suppressed or ignored or all sorts of stuff. It, it's a very basic form of of conspiracy theory itself, this uh, skepticism of these knowledge validating institutions. And there's five different types that Barkin identified. There's forgotten knowledge. So that's like claims of, um, you know, we've forgotten this knowledge that came to us from Atlantis over time. Right. Superseded knowledge. So claims once recognized as knowledge, but they've since become regarded as false. Um, ignored knowledge, rejected, and then the classic all-encompassing suppress knowledge and you so, see elements of this in, in pretty much every pseudo-archaeological claim those are the claims that archaeologists are hiding the truth or ignoring things because we're protecting our reputation or whatever this this is when you lean into the microphone really closely and go this is how you do your own research but, but <laughs> yes yes exactly and yeah like QAnon is a, a very good example of um this sort of all-encompassing this movement they've drawn in elements from so many different places and there's there's sub communities of QAnon too so they've got their very core belief in this deep state cabal of satanic elites that eat children and, and drain them of adrenochrome um, but then there's all these other things that go into that as well and that's where you see the different sub communities pop up uh, and a really really big sub community is what uh, this one researcher called the Q age which is a play on new age um, and that's where we see a lot of the pseudo-arc in particular popping up. Um, they're very much into mostly ancient aliens type of stuff. They're all into um, galactic federations and um, star seeds is a, a term, a thing. Um, so there's a lot of the ancient alien stuff drawn in there, but also a lot of Atlantis stuff as well, because this idea of ancient wisdoms is very important to New Age spirituality and Atlantis pops in there all the time. So there's a lot of pseudo arc in QAnon. If you look at these very popular um, 
visualizations. Sometimes you see them being shared around on social media as this like wacky looking map with all these words and all these like arrows and everything connecting them. If you are willing to take a closer look at it, and I don't recommend anybody actually look at this map, but you will see elements of pseudo arc all over it that are tied to other things by arrows and lines and stuff. So, yeah. That's right, listener. Stephanie is subscribing to the high-end VPN, so you don't have to. So you can, <laughs> yeah. you can protect your internet security and your algorithms. <laughs> That's um, right. But, but one thing that you you mentioned here, so so um, QAnon, I I think is a is a very real thing in the sense that it's it's at once a kind of online conspiracy. On the other hand, it's a man in a Viking helmet waving around a a, a flagpole at a at a riot at the U.S. Capitol. And so mm-hmm. one of the things I wonder is the degree to which um, these contemporary alt-right movements, and I think you've, you've done some work on this, are drawing on these pseudo-archaeological theories. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I mean, everybody kind of laughs at QAnon and thinks it's a very social media or internet-based thing. And, and to some degree, it is still very internet-based, but it does jump out of the internet. It does impact people's real lives, like we just sort of referenced the insurrection currently in Saskatchewan. Um Romana Dadillo, I probably mispronounced her name. She's set herself up in this very small town in Saskatchewan called Richmond. Oh, yeah. She's, the, yeah, the she's Q-Non more popular than I was the, yeah, exactly, oh, the QAnon queen. Right. Um, so she's taken over an empty school in this very tiny town, and, and she and her followers are really digging in deep over there. The more people from the town try to push them out, the more they reluctant they are to leave. Um, she is very into uh, ancient alien and alien related stuff as well as part of her whole QAnon thing. So it does, it does impact people's real lives. Um, and when it comes to the alt-right or the far right, archaeology is very powerful. It, it provides a very tangible connection to the past and the past itself is also very powerful. Um, people, a lot of the the far right people that I uh, read or, or looked written about, I should say, talk about the importance of knowing one's past to protect the future. Um, And so to that, archaeology can provide a very tangible connection to the past. Uh, And if the archaeology doesn't support their ideologies, well, who cares? They can just write a new story for the archaeology. So archaeology becomes very powerful and pseudo-archaeology is viewed as very legitimate, but stigmatized archaeology. So it's seen as it's Somebody's actually, you know, sharing some sort of truth, but the archaeologists just don't want to get that out. Um, they want to block that from getting out, which itself becomes very powerful and people are more attracted to that, the um, essentially the thrill of the conspiracy type of thing. So pseudoarch provides kind of like um, a reinforcement type value to a lot of far-right ideologies. Historical revisionism is one of the characteristics of the, the modern contemporary far-right and pseudoarchaeology is a part of that. And it also provides, it acts sometimes as a recruitment tool as well. So one guy I'm writing about in this paper, who's just a terrible human being, um, he talks a lot about a particularly popular pseudo-archaeology um, proponent who has a Netflix show and has written many best-selling books. And this guy talks about how he uses that author's books to essentially draw more people into white supremacism because... Uh, as he sort of says that this author essentially doesn't realize the messages that he's putting out that the far right are really attracted to. And that actually provides a really good avenue to attract people. It doesn't turn them off right away when they read this author's book. So this guy will be like, hey, you should read this book. And if somebody's like, well, this book has some really interesting ideas, he views it as an in, another way to just keep 
drawing them in. And so Sudark it's also has that value subversive. as well. It is. It's very manipulative. And which is then when you see this content on things like Netflix or Discovery Channel, seems very goofy and very outlandish um, and very silly. But when you know how it's viewed as valuable by the far right, then you start to question why is Netflix or Discovery or History or YouTube even um, essentially spreading that. They're kind of blurring the lines between far right and, and non right far right sources transmitting the messages for the far right um without even realizing it many times yeah and i i mean you raise a good point there too about like uh spreading on the internet and and gabe had a question down here what's the role of uh on the of the internet in pseudo-archaeology but also like one of the things that i've been kind of curious about is like uh, uh when we first posted our show uh uh the first search result that comes up beside ours is Jordan Peterson's podcast, right? And so like one of the things that I think is really challenging about this is that on top of um, you know the, the the far right sort of glomming onto these pseudo-archaeological narratives, there seems to be kind of an increasingly like right-leaning algorithm that's sort of driving people towards this. And so like, like jokingly, I kind of wrote down uh, like what, like, <laughs> how do you manage that like researching this stuff and like how do you sort of navigate that but also um uh like do you see that like this sort of is like a a snowball rolling right like once Mm -hmm. somebody grabs onto this you end up in these black holes and and how do you sort of manage to get out of those and and how do you talk Mm -hmm. to people about sort of countering that narrative right just to interrupt briefly, Ken, I'm a little embarrassed. You've discovered my all beef diet that led to the algorithm to produce that, that response. <laughs> I, yeah, I was trying to think of why is your podcast appearing beside Jordan Peterson? Now it all makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the other side note, very tragic thing about Brother 12 is he actually looks quite a bit like Jordan Peterson. Um, so when I'm doing my Brother 12 stuff, I'm also thinking about Jordan Peterson and it's just tragic on both fronts. um yeah the internet does play an interesting actually the the whole thing this paper um chapter that i'm just wrapping up right now that i told you about it it literally started with a google search um and i started with a google search for atlantis because periodically i i just search you know pseudo-archaeological keywords atlantis being a very popular one to see where does the internet direct me to um and i i don't really like to use fancy coding things to get all these big you know data sets because i really am just interested in what the everyday person sees when they go onto google and they type in atlantis what do they find uh and from this simple google search i was directed to a gazillion far-right websites um and in many cases you don't even realize necessarily that's where you're going um so it uh, this paper sort of starts with a particular YouTube video about Atlantis that I was like, what is this? And I clicked on it and it had been posted on a far right website. So I'm watching this YouTube video on this far right website, which then got me thinking, well, where else is Atlantis popping up on the?" And it just led down this very deep, dark, terrible rabbit hole um, into far worse places. So, and there's certain um, pseudo archeological theories or certain keywords too, I, where I know that is where it's going to direct me to. If you're going to search, uh, search Salutrian hypothesis, put your safe search on, because if you do not put safe search on, you will end up in terrible places because it's a very popular theory on the far right. Um, even on, on Twitter slash X now, um, it's a terrible place right now, uh, just with the changes that have been made 
um, a lot of content that I was not seeing that I would only see because I'd added it to special lists. You can create lists on Twitter where it's, I want to see stuff from these people in particular. So you turn on this list. Um, I was not seeing content from any of those folks without this list on. And now every time I go onto Twitter, that's the first stuff I see. So the internet does play a pretty big role. It connects people to larger sources of data than they would have been connected to, or, or more areas, I should say, than they would have been connected to you beforehand. Algorithms pick up on, on what you're sort of searching for, and they start to suggest things. Um, look at like YouTube, you search a video on YouTube, what are the recommended videos that pop up on the side, TikTok, even places like that. So the, the algorithms do play a big part. And that's where something called pre-bunking um, comes into effect or becomes more effective. Debunking is important. Um, I'm not saying it's not important, but pre-bunking is a little bit better. Um, just giving people the tools ahead of time, letting people know what to look for, what are things that should be raising red flags, yeah. what are questions that you should be asking when you come across certain things. Um, essentially, you're you're inoculating. It comes from inoculation theory. You're just preparing people for the content they might see, giving them tools to be able to sort of critically analyze it on their own and decide for themselves if they should look for more information. Maybe they should look for more information somewhere else, that kind of thing. That's a really important thing to do. Could you run through a few of those um, maybe techniques for the non-professional archaeologist or for the professional archaeologist looking to kind of help the non-professional archaeologist navigate yeah, the internet basically for these sorts of things yeah because i think i think the real danger here is that some of this could be very you could get really wrapped up in this stuff very innocently like we had a mm -hmm. uh we had an open house at the start of the semester and there was a student who's a new uh a new student at the university and he was very excited to talk to us because he was taking some archaeology classes and he clearly had some background information in archaeology then he started talking about i can't remember what specifically it was and and we kind of had to say like oh well you got to be really careful about those kinds of videos and like uh you know like and and he was like oh he's like what do you mean and we we're kind of explaining that like you know that's not really based in fact and you got to be really you know kind of cautious about sort of where you're pulling your information on in archaeology and he was like oh i hadn't really thought about that before and and so so what are some yeah so as like gabe said what are what are some of the tools that you can kind of prepare people for to to pre-bunk i like that term yeah pre-bunk just being proactive rather than reactive right yeah, when you start to learn about what the characteristics or when you have like sort of a list, um, I always sort of set aside or have a list of what what defines something as being pseudo-archaeological, um, have that prepared and you teach that list to people. You teach them what are the characteristics of pseudo-archaeology? What does it actually look like? What does it sound like? Where are spaces that you might encounter it? Um, because then if people do come across it in a YouTube video or they come across it in a book, suddenly it's like, wait, this was on the list of things that maybe I should think twice about, um, take with the grain of salt. So just sort of teaching people how to identify something, like what does it look like? What are those key characteristics is, is really, really helpful. Um, and then also sort of talking about um, different styles of, of how this information is presented. So it, there's um, a great paper I was reading not that long ago about the different types. There's three, these researchers identified sort of three types of conspiracy videos on YouTube. Uh, and one type, the exhibiting narrative style of, of YouTube video or of conspiracy video is very common in pseudo-arc. Um, 
those are those type of videos where it's like this rapid flash of all these different images where they don't spend much time on one image. They quickly move to the next and say, see, it looks the same. And and then the narrator is, you know, telling you the stories. They're flashing through all these images, not really giving you time to stop and actually look at things. So you're seeing these things, but you're being told a different narrative or told a narrative. And, and that narrative is helping you think about what you're seeing. So um, identifying what certain types of or popular types of sharing pseudo-archaeological content, like what do the videos look like, is also really useful. Um, I, again, the characteristics, so like telling people, at least for me, identifying uh, what do conspiracist type statements look like? What are What do stigmatized knowledge statements look like? Because that should raise red flags in your mind. Um, and then also- and those are the statements that are like, the big archaeology does not want you to know. Those are those kinds of statements? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous yeah, knowledge. Exactly. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Forbidden knowledge or, you know, they are the, censoring me, blah, blah, blah. The, the challenge with those ones, though, is like every documentary that's legitimate is like mysteries of the Maya and like mysteries of Shaco Canyon and and like yep. that that sort of stuff. Right. And so like even the stuff that has legitimate research in it is framed in that kind of same like grab your attention way. That's a it is. It is. The headlines are kind of a pain in the butt um, and, and the titles of things for sure. So, yeah, the, you know, the title of something might be off-putting, but then as you're listening to the researchers talk about it, are they bringing the researchers themselves or the talking heads themselves? Are they bringing up any of these characteristics or referencing any of these characteristics? Um, and even just like thinking about how to um, prepare people for encountering it on social media, if people do go onto social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or anything, um, learning about when, when is a good time to, or when, when should you react versus not react? Cause sometimes not reacting is the better option. Um, and when you do react, there are better ways to react than other ways. Um, and, and sort of teaching people how to, when you do encounter it, how do you react to it? What is a good way to react versus a not good way to react? Um, just things like that. So, so that actually uh, sort of segues to the the question I've been been maybe most excited to ask you. So, uh -oh. um, I uh, I spent uh, about a year living in in West Virginia, and I was always struck by in, in any kind of social situation. Um, you know, eventually it it often comes up what you do, and you can only lie and say you're a land surveyor for so long. <laughs> um, and then and then eventually it becomes apparent that you're not a land surveyor because you're not very good at trigonometry. Um, and then the person you're talking to says, and and, and you know, not a member of the the alt right or or mm -hmm. or, or, mm -hmm. or I think a malicious person at all will say, "Oh, have you seen the Oak Island TV show?" And you and you can tell that they kind of know it's a guilty pleasure, and they then they kind of say, "Well, well, like I know you're gonna think this is wrong, but I I, I think they sort of also think, well, there must be some truth to this, right? But yeah. sure, it's sensationalized, <laughs> but it's not bonkers, you know, in the mm -hmm. way that it mm -hmm. it actually is, and so." How do you react? Um, as a coward, I've always tended to react by by sort of saying something like, well, you know, actually, the, the actual archaeology of Nova Scotia is so much more interesting. And, you know, that's a bunch of um, uh, sort of like, you know, made up tales. And and mm -hmm. but I don't know that that's that effective. Right. And I don't know that it's right. that effective against inoculating um, against these kind of bigger problems that pervade. What it, to whatever degree Oak Island uh, might be a kind of gateway drug to many more um, like malicious things, right? malicious like, or, yeah. or mm -hmm. things that that um, one might find on the stormfront. 
and what the and what the listener <laughs> what the listener doesn't know is that when when Stephanie came on the uh, on the call here, she she held up a book on Oak Island. Uh, she knew who she was getting in with here, and yeah. and uh, that's right. And brought that she brought the meat and potatoes basically to. Um, Absolutely. I anticipated Oak Island. I so rarely get to talk about Oak Island. I was like, now's my chance. We Um, work niche on this podcast. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, you know, first to preface, yeah, definitely not everyone who's into this stuff is like a far right neo-Nazi. We just have to ask why are neo-Nazis so into this stuff? Um, But something to think about too. But yeah, definitely there's I, I do encounter people like that for sure who are just like innocently interested and in, and to some degree it, I think it reflects to access um to archaeology there's so so much archaeological knowledge out there but so much of it also you know inaccessible to the everyday persons behind all these paywalls doesn't mean there's nothing out there there's great blogs out there there are great YouTube videos there are excellent TikTok channels information's out there um but yeah, I, I do often encounter people who will be like, um, oh, you know, Graham Hancock raises some good points. Have you read any of Graham Hancock's stuff before? Or, or yeah, you know, Oak Island. What do you think about Oak Island? I think that's pretty interesting and and stuff like that. And you sort of can gauge a little bit right off the front or right at the beginning how sincere they are. Like some people do just want to argue and be contrarian and um, and sea lion you and, and you're not going to get through to people like that. But if somebody is is very just genuinely interested and, and they raise an incorrect point, um, even just saying something very simple as like, well, you know, that's not entirely correct um, or, you know, that's, you know, taking a little bit out of context, those sort of little friendly slide ins are, are actually quite effective. That was another paper I was reading recently about how literally just saying, hey, dude, you're not entirely or that's not entirely correct is actually a really good opener and people do tend to listen um, and then, yeah, just totally geek out about the actual archaeology. When you start to show your passion, your interest, then a lot of people are suddenly like, oh, you guys are just dorks. Like, you're not trying to hide anything. You're, you're like telling me about this tiny shirt of pottery. Like, what the heck? Um, so, yeah, just looking for those little openings and, and explaining. Um, I tend to talk a lot about the importance of context because, you know, context in archaeology is, is highly important. It's, it's pretty much everything. And when you start to explain the importance of context and then give examples of how something, uh, you know, somebody might be saying something that's factually true, but it, when it's removed from its context and inserted into a different context, that's when the problems start. And when you give examples of what that looks like, that's also really helpful, um, especially when you have sources you can direct people to as well. If there's a really good blog where you're like, hey, if you're interested in this, you should go check out so-and-so's blog or, oh, have you read this book or have you seen this YouTube video, like stuff like that. Just offering sources um, is really helpful uh, and being patient as well. Patience is a, a very undervalued skill, um, but being patient and, and having just a very calm, friendly conversation, being willing to have a conversation more than once, perhaps if it's somebody who, you know, a friend or somebody you see regularly, um, that also the, really helps. Recognizing listener, sometimes that's hard to be patient. Yeah. The listener can't see Gabe wincing right now. It's uh, the... <laughs> Uh, yeah but but so so i just one of the things that i I wanted to build on that though is so to what degree you you talked about this idea of stigmatized knowledge so if i'm at a dinner party with someone and again we're we're still talking about we're going to move into the darker corners of this i think uh unfortunately soon but um 
And, and I say, well, you know, actually I'm an archeologist and I can sort of tell you, you know, that these are the problems. Am I, to what degree does that lean into this idea that of these stigmatized knowledge claims of, oh yeah, these archeologists, well, of course you wouldn't believe that because you're an archeologist mm -hmm. and you're part of right. uh, big archeology span and you're here to squash the conspiracy. Oh, definitely. Yeah. St and stigmatized knowledge. Yeah. Any attempt to correct information is sort of seen as proof of truthfulness, right? Like these things resist falsification by always twisting something to be proof of the conspiracy. So absolutely, as soon as we start um, confronting and and trying to sort of, um, I don't, I hate using the word correct, but I can't think of a better word to use, but correct the misinformation. Um, yeah, that depending on who you're talking to, that can definitely be taken as more signifier of, of the truthfulness of this conspiracy. But that's where, yeah, you'll, you'll generally figure out pretty quickly um, when somebody is really hardcore into the conspiracy side of things, they become very um, uh, sort of start to be very, there's a term is just asking questions where they will just repeatedly ask all these questions and then just be like, they'll say something absolutely ridiculous and just be like, well, I'm just asking questions here. You know, it makes you think. Um but by repeatedly asking these questions over and over, often the same one, just, you know, waiting a couple of questions, repeating the question, they're just not interested in learning. Um, and you can tell pretty quickly versus somebody who is more interested in learning. They're going to be a little bit more open and a little more willing to actually continue the conversation without cutting you out off with questions and trying to distract with different things. Um and so those are the folks that you sort of just take that advantage and and keep just gently sharing information and and pointing to different sources. So you can tell most of the time, uh, maybe I shouldn't see, be that confident. You can tell a lot of the time when somebody is um, genuinely willing to listen versus just being contrary and troll. Um, don't waste your time on the contrary and trolls. You're not going to get anywhere. Spend your time yeah. instead on the folks who might be on the fence listening to this conversation um, as opposed to actively pushing back on it. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. super helpful advice. Yeah. And so so and that kind of builds on this notion of pre-bunking. And, and I kind of I was kind of I picked on sort of. So do you think archaeology and archaeologists in some sense are a little bit at fault because we're not actually very good communicators about what it is we do sometimes. And and you said, you know, there's a lack of access, which is something we've actually talked about on the show before. And that Gabe and I have kind of like been sort of spitballing about how do we sort of open up ways for people to to do that. But that I I, I find that do you find that what you're seeing uh, in a lot of times with these people that are kind of fence sitting, it's that that cool factor in what we do and the stuff that kind of gra grabs people's attention. Like so, um, you know, failing apart from getting, you know, a million dollar budget to produce a Netflix show about, you know, uh, I don't know, shell heaps on south coast of Nova Scotia uh, with all those, <laughs> like, you'd have some beautiful viewscapes and everything like that, but uh, it's a lot of like trowel scraping. Um, mm -hmm. So how, like, are we a little bit at fault in the sense that we don't do a very good job of this pre-bunking because a lot of what we do is sort of trapped inside of this academic world? And like, how do you, how do you in your work push that out and find ways to communicate that and sort of do this pre-bunking just sort of through, you know, what you do. Right. I do think that to some degree, yeah, we, we need to take responsibility as well. Um, absolutely. For our actions as archaeologists, it's not being good communicators over the years. There are some archaeologists who are just phenomenal communicators um, who just really reach people. They're so engaging. You just really want to listen to them. And then there are other archaeologists who just aren't great communicators 
Um, and you're just two seconds into it. You're like, man, like your subject is so interesting, but oh my gosh, you're just not making me excited for it. I don't want to listen. Um, and, and I think Would that- Would you care to name names, Stephanie? No. <laughs> um, not at this time. <laughs> but yeah, like I think that- um, I really push for archaeologists to be willing to communicate, being willing to engage with pseudo-archaeologists, not necessarily engage with the pseudo-archaeologists themselves or, you know, the people who believe it, engage with it in the sense of being willing to talk about it and discuss it and, and break things down. Um, but uh, yeah, I understand that not everybody enjoys communicating public communications either, and that's fine. Not everybody's good at it, to be completely honest. Some people are just terrible communicators generally. Um and that can have some really negative impacts as well. So we do have to, as much as what we have to think about what we say, we do have to think about how we're saying it. Um, how we're saying it can have a, a very positive impact or very negative impact. Um, and so uh, social media is still a good place, I think, to communicate with folks, um, to get the information out. Um, Twitter used to be a phenomenal place for it. Now it's not a phenomenal place for it. So we're still sort of searching for kind of something similar. Um, TikTok is a good place. I sort of, I personally keep an eye on what spaces are becoming popular. What are people flocking to and, and what are people talking about uh, and start looking into, is that a good avenue to start to reach out to people and, and talk to people about different things? Um, so yeah, trying on TikTok, YouTube still, YouTube is, is still a good place. I think TikTok is a little bit better to be honest. Um, but yeah, just watch where people are going and um, what people are starting to bring up as spaces that they're learning from um, and start to to use that as well. So we've talked, I think, so far mostly about, I mean, the, at the beginning, not entirely, but mostly about um, parts of pseudo-archaeology that are not just overtly dark and overtly linked to white supremacist websites to um ex you know explicitly neo-nazi ideologies and so forth um and i think that there is at least there's some distinction there maybe maybe it's blurry but for the one one hopes the Brunswick archaeology podcast listener has not had to go into some of the dark corners of the internet that that you have um and i've certainly tried to avoid them so i wonder if you could just maybe give the listener a sense of what the sort of down the road, really bleak, where is all of this going? Um, Pseudo-archaeology uh, as as the absolute darkest kind of nastiness that you've, maybe not the darkest. I feel like I've just set this up to be a real weird, like, <laughs> look into men's soul and tell us the worst thing you've seen on the internet. <laughs> what made yeah, you but, cry today? What, yeah, yeah, what was exactly. your worst? What was your worst day on the internet? Yeah, but but the 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 thing that you you sent us a um a draft you're working on, and I was just struck by some of the legendarily bleak websites that you've mm -hmm. had to spend time on, um, mm -hmm. and and wondered if you could sort of share a like what why are we so worried about this? Where can this end up? Right. Yeah. It you know even the most outlandish outlandish sounding thing. So like I'm I always go for ancient aliens claims because they're they're so goofy sounding, right? Like aliens from Mars or actually sorry Venus more likely from Venus. Um, I spend too much oh. time reading this stuff, so I know there's a distinction between Martians and Venusians. How do you tell? Um, <laughs> Asking uh, for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Asking for a friend. How do you tell the difference? 
<laughs> uh, well, you know, there's a whole thing about um, the appearance of the different aliens and are they reptilian? Are they bird-like? Are they grays? Are they greens? Um, or what are what are their names? The Dracos. Do not trust the Dracos. Um, that is something I've learned. And and today I was reading through um, a, a newer cursed content um, book that I picked up recently. And I learned that uh, raptors on Mars are descended from raptors on Earth. Um, so, okay. you know, yeah, I know. Right. The more, you huh. know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You know, the ancient... ornithologists have been suppressing that. And I've just been missing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. missing all the opportunities. Keeping that, that stuff Think about back. birding yeah, on sure. Olympus Mons. That's, uh, you know, it sounds warm. Yeah. yeah. They're cold. You know, I'm not actually sure how it works. Yeah. The the avians, the blue avians are the good guys. I'll say that. All okay. Right. Um, so blue avians seem to be OK. Um, yeah. So, the, you know, this stuff seems really goofy. It's really silly. Um, but yet it ends up on like, you know, hardcore websites like far right websites like Stormfront um, or, you know, Renegade Tribune um, is one that I've, I've looked at. The create the creativity guys are kind of weird dudes. Generally, they're all weird dudes. Um, but the creativity. And they are all um, dudes, listener. This is the other unfortunate <laughs> yeah, side yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah there's a lot yeah, of dudes here. And, and you can yeah. you can picture what they look like right now. Like, uh, <laughs> What they smell so like heavy is breathing. more worried about, I think. Yeah, but. yeah, so much heavy breathing. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to discount the role when there's a fantastic. I'm just looking down right now. People can't see me looking down. I have a new book. If you want to learn more about the um, Dracos and the the raptors on Mars, um, <laughs> fleet. Dark uh, fleet. It's a. Oh wow. Nazi space program. The secret space program is a big thing in QAnon as well. Oh. Um, Did not yeah, know also, that. <laughs> like to Nazi stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but speaking of women on the far right, there's a new book. It's called The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influencers and Online Radicalization by Evienne Leidig. I, I might, Leidig, I think I pronounced her name wrong. It's it's new. It's fantastic. So if you want to learn more about women specifically in the far right, good space to look. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the Sudark, the simple search for Atlantis, for example, took me onto this website, Renegade, Renegade Tribune, which do not listeners do not look up this website. Um, but it is a very alt history, conspiracy theory, far right website. Um, I have found stuff on um, another website uh, that is known for its Holocaust denialism and historical revisionism, um, which this one guy that I'm writing about in this paper as well has written this whole pseudo-arc book about his ancient Aryans theories that literally starts off with Holocaust denialism. Um, and then, yeah, looking at the create, there's a movement called creativity. It's, it's not a huge movement, but it's, it's a pretty violent movement here. He's facing up to 35 years in prison for intimidating the jurors in the tree of life shooting trial that's on right now. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. That's the, and he, that's the synagogue, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and he's the one who was talking about how he uses a, a particular pseudoarch author's books um, to draw people into white supremacism. And he's made a lot of videos on uh, rum uh, bit shoot in particular. There's some streaming that bit shoot and rumble are similar to YouTube, except very far right favored. Hmm. Um, so he talks a lot on there. He makes videos about pseudoarch stuff. He's also a, a flat earther, um, which is another thing. That's the whole stigmatized knowledge aspect where uh, people who are into stigmatized knowledge into one form of it are likely to be drawn to other um, 
conspiracy theories as well, just through this unified idea of, of hidden truths and, and whatnot. So yeah, this stuff, it takes you into some pretty foul places, Stormfront being pretty awful, um, mm-hmm. more so than a lot of the other places. Um, I also spend a lot of time um, keeping an eye on uh, if I see archaeologists being mentioned by far-right people. Um, sometimes I will send them a message as well and just be like, hey, just a heads up. These folks on this website are, are talking about you, so you might get some nasty emails coming your way, um, that kind of thing. So yeah, it, it takes you into darker places than what you would think, I think, if somebody just started talking about ancient aliens theories. Uh, you would be surprised to end up on a neo-Nazi website. Yeah. But it happens. The, and, and it's all this related to, um, you mentioned in in one of the things that you've, or because you've worked on a lot of things and I've been sort of mm-hmm. working through them. So I'm, I'm going to miss where you mentioned this, but that there's a civilizationalist focused mm-hmm. on, um, particularly on ancient sort of, this is kind of like all in quotes. So I'm, the listener can't see the air quotes, but it's all in quotes <laughs> on, on ancient advanced, technologies right this idea that well you can't build pyramids because whatever reason so it has to be aliens mm-hmm. um and it seems like this just kind of naturally if you're the sort of person that hangs out on stormfront um follows that uh, all of a sudden we have white aliens or something like yeah. that yeah it's um, like myth of the mound builders communities like 21st yeah. century oh. myth of the mound builders basically right Oh, for sure. Yeah. The mound builders are still very popular. Uh, I see mound mentions of mound builders pop up all the time. Yeah. Civilizationism, um, far right civilizationism. This author, Alexandra McFadden, she's talking about what is far right civilizationism. And so I'll just quote from what I've, I've written of hers here, where the ideological concept of far right civilizationism is the notion of a superior and oftentimes white civilization and it represents a community of mostly white Western and European unions uh, or nations unified by what is viewed as highly advanced social, technological, and environmental facets. Um, and so within the global far right anyway, historical revisionism is a really key characteristic. They're all really into that kind of thing. So when you have these guys that are proposing or these these folks who are proposing these theories talking about these ancient uh, technologically advanced civilizations from Atlantis, for example, or maybe from Venus or whatever, that's going to catch the uh, the attention of somebody who's already looking for evidence of their own technologically superior white civilization. Um, so when you look at the the vast majority of pseudo-archaeological theories talk about advanced uh, technology and advanced civilizations, uh, and it's just, you know, people who are looking for that are really going to glob onto it and and see it as support for their own thing. So as I've mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm basically a wuss. And so my response to <laughs> often the pseudo-archaeology things, I've justified by saying that um, it's, it's the old internet axiom that we talked about a little bit before um, before we started that, well, we just shouldn't feed the trolls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that if, if um, in, you know, we're going to, or we're going to amplify the wrong voices, all these kinds of things, um, which I've taken as part of my reason for deafening silence on social media. Um <laughs> I, you know, and also liking to be able to sleep at night. And um, so, <laughs> so you, you, but you also mentioned this idea of a, of a backfire effect and that there are questions of how to react to all of this. And so I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking you to respond to the archaeologist like me who says, well, well, my response is that it's better just to let this bang around some uh, fringy websites, uh, people that already believe it, I can't convince them. 
Um, and then if I engage with this, it's going to give it a certain seriousness. And the listeners should know, depending on when this goes to air, this is sort of a, a prequel to, I guess it's going to be a, a Flint Dibble, Graham Hancock uh, mix up Showdown on, on Joe Rogan show or something to this effect. And um, <laughs> that strikes, right? so it struck me as perhaps an example of um, chumming for troll, but I'm not really sure what the, uh, what the professional archaeologist reaction to all this should be. Right. I, so I think that the whole Joe Rogan thing has actually been delayed. Um, okay. Flint is working oh, on some, okay. some health stuff. So it's been delayed oh, until okay. next year, I think like next spring or something like that last I saw. One thing I, I recommend everybody reads, there's this fantastic document. It's called Oxygen of Amplification. It's a three-part um, PDF or article. It's in three PDFs. You can find it freely online if you just search the um, oxygen of amplification. It was a document that was originally written for journalists who report on the far right, the alt right, agitators, um, that kind of thing on basically how to essentially recognize when you should react versus not react, how to react, that kind of thing. So even though it was written for journalists, I recommend it to anybody who does any sort of um, front-facing communication type of work. It's really, really valuable. And, excuse me, they they talk a lot about essentially um, how to recognize rage farming, um, which is a very popular technique with um, far-right folks who, or, or general contrarian folks who, who just want to like get you into this frenzy and they want to get people talking about things. They want to get people, you know, really reacting to things because that spreads unintentionally spreads their message. So we might have the best intentions by reacting to things, but we have to think about, are we actually doing the work for these folks by spreading this um, around? Are we giving them more oxygen and, and amplification? And through that, you can learn about techniques on how to talk about things while trying to minimize the amount of amplification you give something. Because to some degree, yeah, any sort of reaction is going to be giving something a little bit more amplification than it would probably otherwise get. Um, but things like, you know, on social media, for example, instead of quote tweeting somebody, take a screenshot, block out the the handles and, and make it sort of a little bit more difficult to actually track down this person uh, for your audience. Um, using not really singling people out, but using perhaps what they're saying as an example of the bigger problem. You talk about the bigger problem. So you're not focusing your conversation on a person. They can't really take it personally and, and attack you for it, things like that. So I highly recommend people read that document um, or those PDFs. They're not really long reads, but they're very, very good reads. And then, yeah, learning, sometimes it is okay to just not, it's a better choice to not react to something. Um, if somebody, you can tell somebody is is rage farming, they're looking for that engagement. You have to stop and think, well, why do they want that engagement? And what am I going to do for them? And then just don't do it. Um, and then, yeah, other times, yeah, recognizing that the person who's making this really outlandish claim, you're probably not going to be getting through to them. So tailoring your conversation for the people on the sides and, and again, sharing almost that pre-bunking information, letting people know what to look for, how do you know that what they're saying is incorrect and, and filling in some um, some incorrect knowledge or some incorrect information with more accurate information. You don't want to just debunk and leave all these holes. You want to actually be able to fill that in with stuff that the, the actual audience can take away. So yeah, there's been many occasions on social media in particular where um, I watch from the side. I would love to say something, but I know that those people are just looking for that really angry engagement or negative engagement and 
I just don't want to give it to them. So I just, you know, won't say anything. Um, yeah, reactions to uh, ancient apocalypse were very much that way as well. There was a mm -hmm. lot of rage farming for that. Um, and yeah, the, the risk is what's called the backfire effect, where we're trying to debunk something. We're trying to let folks know how something is, is wrong or incorrect. Um, and the backfire is that sometimes that can increase the engagement with that content in these fringe spaces. Uh, so we do have to be conscious of that as well and think about, okay, we know that this long thread I'm going to write is going to amplify it to some degree. Where do I want that amplification to end up? Do I want it to be in these spaces or do I want it to be sort of more that space? So um, again, starting with oxygen of amplification, really good space to start. And then think about communications based on that. That's really helpful. And, and yeah. it's actually occurring to me as you go through this that we should maybe consider doing a podcast on sort of managing social media for the archaeologists. This would be an yeah, interesting yeah. topic. Something, a, something neither of us are particularly to. good at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, I only recently I, realized that the, the podcast Instagram was also posting directly to my Facebook. So I clearly have this well under yeah. control. And, and, I don't, and I don't have many social medias like i i have never been on twitter and and i it's like i sort of am very proud of that in some ways but uh uh i i, I mean i i've missed the entire point of it being um uh, being helpful and so now now i can gladly say i didn't take part in it but you know i i know t uh students talk about tiktok and i know that there's a couple of um uh, like science communication. Uh, I, I was talking to my one of uh, the graduate student who's TAing my my class right now, and she was saying that so she um, works in permafrost research in in the Arctic, mm -hmm. and she said that um, climate change researchers have really taken mm -hmm. advantage of TikTok as a way to sort of circulate factual information about climate change um, in a in a you know digestible format. Um, so I don't know, Gabe, maybe we need to start dancing and talking about uh, 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 New Brunswick archaeology and videos or something. Well, well Ken, I, I remember the, uh, the this is probably the best piece of advice about the Internet, which is that you should um, you should dance like no one's watching, but you should tweet like it one day may be subpoenaed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the we're sort of wary about taking your um, entire evening. We're often a long form podcast here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this conversation, I think we could, we could kind of track this along forever, but I think we, we had one major thing we wanted to kind of ask you about, which is that you're doing a lot of, um, sorry, we have two major things we want to ask you about actually. And uh -oh. but the, sorry, sorry, we have I only three, signed up for one. Three major <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah. Um, but Ken and I were, were very curious about how, if you could tell us how the internet algorithms work mm. roughly to create or to accentuate this problem. And so one of the things that we had discovered and Ken and I were discussing was that uh, we apparently are um, sort of alongside the Jordan Peterson uh, hits, if you like Google this podcast. And we wondered to what degree is the internet kind of feeding this problem? It, it we've already asked about the internet, but like the algorithms in particular are feeding this problem. Um, first of all, it, it froze for half a second. Can you guys like, am I still good on your side? You're good. You're good. You're back uh, Gabe, now. Yeah. Yeah. Gabe talked through okay, your, okay. um, you're frozen. So yeah, we came through, we came <laughs> through to the other side. 
This is going to emerge because of our last podcast. Like a more confident me. I just, I just plow on no matter what's happening. I'm like, I'm like the Ken Holyoke of, uh, of 2022. It sounded like Skrillex on my side and Skrillex is very popular. So, you know, if that yeah. helps you feel better. That's my um, New England accent. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. The internet algorithms. The algorithm, it varies a little bit too, depending on where you're at. So like the TikTok algorithm, for example, I'm thinking specifically more of a social media thing. The TikTok algorithm is very different than the Instagram algorithm, which is very different than the Twitter algorithm. Um, Mastodon has no algorithm. So depending on where you're at, the algorithm works a little bit differently. TikTok is particularly aggressive. You pause on a video for like half a second and suddenly they think that's all you want to see. Um, and so for the next day, all you're going to get are videos of, um, my shameful confection confession is farrier videos. Uh, I love watching farriers at work. And so I pause on half a, a video and be like, Oh my God, look at the size of that horse's hoof. massive!" <laughs> and now the next 40 videos are, are farriers, um, oh, wow. which I is on one hand. Okay. If you're really into farriers, that's cool. You get to see all these farrier videos, but then it's like, you, you might change your algorithm really quickly onto something. You make the mistake like I do of pausing on something about, um, you know, Lemuria and suddenly all my farriers are gone and, and I'm learning about fairies living in inner earth cities. Um, so it's, <laughs> so, or sometimes, you know, sometimes I have intentionally tried to change my TikTok algorithm when I'm looking for something very specific, like Atlantis, for example, um, and I want to see what's going on with Atlantis on TikTok. And so I search Atlantis and then like I watch a video and then nothing. I get nothing from Atlantis after that. And then it's just goofy cat videos. Um, so it's I, I TikTok algorithm is still like a little bit mysterious, but it is more aggressive um, versus Instagram, which I don't even know how the heck the Instagram algorithm works. It's I see like a post that's like from two seconds ago and then suddenly post that's three days ago and and you know, post yeah. that's from the future even. Instagram um, decided I was a Christian nationalist. Um oh, no. uh, about, oh, probably because uh, you're about, white male. Uh, about two months ago. And I live in southern Alberta too, right? So oh, that doesn't help. Yeah. Um I was was say, a, I'm a white male and Instagram knows I just want to see cats in bodegas. It's uh, <laughs> it's fully aware. <laughs> I have heard about that though happening. I think uh who was it? Might even been my husband was saying all of a sudden he was getting some like weird stuff on Instagram too, where it was deciding he was like a particular type of guy. Yeah. Um so yeah, I, shut, I, I it's hard. I shut it off for like three weeks and then came back and it was back to uh, there's a particular brand of t-shirt that's uh, designed for dad bods that uh, that Instagram <laughs> really, really wants me to buy. That's like uh, yeah. uh you know, it is my my feed is just littered with that. And sorry, and listen, we're going to pause here. Ken, Ken Thurble just rang and there's a, what is that? <laughs> oh, is it, uh, another uh, dead uh, yeah, another satisfied yes. customer. Uh, <laughs> now in blue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then there's like Google as well, where Google, you can use like search engine optimization where you add certain keywords to like your podcast and stuff to pop up on um, Google. Or I, I remember hearing that, like having a Facebook page for, um, say your podcast, for example, helps in the Google searches as well. So oh, I'm not an I, expert. I don't think we on... do that. We don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how true that is anymore because Google has also been changing. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely 
definitely not an expert in internet algorithms, but there is some really interesting stuff out there about it. Um, a lot of researchers I've seen on like TikTok and Twitter and stuff, uh, or I should say used to see them before Twitter got all messed up. Um, there is a lot of really interesting information on on how algor algorithms feed into certain um, certain stuff, especially like on, on YouTube, uh, where essentially conspiracy theory videos sell. It makes a lot of money for YouTube, which is why they're constantly pushing it into your feeds. There's I'm trying to remember there was a really good docu-series I watched. I think it was the one about Sherry Schreiner, who um, she had like this sort of internet cult going on and it was very based in like evil reptilians and and stuff. Um, there was a docu-series a couple of years ago and there's this one fantastic episode in the series where they had um, this French researcher talking about how algorithms work in particular on YouTube and how, yeah, Conspiracy theory videos sell. It makes YouTube a lot of money, which is why they're constantly pushing it into your feeds. Yeah. Um, there's, that, there's that sort of horrifying documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma, that came out a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. It was all these people that were like uh, the initial like programmers and crafters of all these social media algorithms. And they were just like, oh, it's gotten totally out of hand. I mean, it's like, it's it's beyond anything that we can control. We've created monsters. And they're all like, but, you know, we made like a billion dollars and uh, now I live in a, you know, a glass hut at the top of a mountain and, and I'm, I'm practicing on myself now, you know, it's like, yes, uh, and I have three vacation <laughs> houses and five yeah. Teslas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the beginning of that question, I was thinking we should stop just sending around the show notes as mimeographed uh, copies that we mailed to our uh, Christmas card list. And now I'm back <laughs> thinking we should do that. So um, <laughs> I've been chomping at the bit to ask about brother 12, but I feel like mm. I should give Ken an opportunity if he has any more, uh, questions before then before we jump into just letting you riff on brother 12 no i i think i think uh let's let's uh let's learn about brother 12 because i have been since since i saw and i was like when i first read it i was like brother x11 and i was like no it must be brother 12 and i was like what is this brother and there's a the the society that he's part of and so mm -hmm. i went on like a wikipedia hole and then i was mm -hmm. uh, so uh but i it's I've, the nine of bars that are solid gold which is exciting that's right yeah. yeah. So uh, I've had my my lips wetted, and now now I'm I'm mm. I, I'm excited to hear more about Brother Twelve. So do do proceed. Um. So yeah, people already know something very tragic that he looks a lot like um, Jordan Peterson does. Um. So there's that. So now listeners have this idea in their mind when I'm saying Brother Twelve. Just think of Jordan Peterson. Probably cried just as much as Jordan Peterson does. Um. So <laughs> the old Brother meat diet. It's a real slog, listener. I don't <laughs> right. <laughs> just hits you right in the gut literally yeah. <laughs> um yeah so brother 12 uh he was obviously not born as brother 12 he was born as edward arthur wilson in 1878 england um and and his whole thing the brother 12 era we're talking about like the mid 1920s to mid 1930s it was very fast it was very short-lived um a lot of these things culty things often are uh, he was raised as a member of the catholic apostolic church they were also known as the irvingites um, and later he became, he was angry at the church. And if you read some of his writing later, he's, he felt that they sort of had pulled a bit of a wool over his eyes and, and denied him a, a truth for a very long time, um, that he felt he could have gotten into sooner. So he, uh, he was eventually excommunicated as an adult. He was excommunicated from the church. 
and he got really into what's called theosophy, which is a um, a spiritual movement. It's um, now very related to New Age spirituality. has a It's the root of a lot of New Age spirituality. It's it's still pretty popular. Names came through theosophy. Atlantis got popularized through theosophy. It's it's quite related to a lot of pseudo archaeological stuff. Is theosophy also the, it's the Waldorf School movement as well, isn't it? Um, I don't know. Oh, I don't know okay. that actually. Um, yeah. and so Theosophy, when br- the time Brother Twelve joined, Theosophy was kind of changing a little bit. So Theosophy was co-founded by this woman, Helena Blavatsky. It was her books, The Secret Doctrine, Isis Unveiled, that were like the foundations of Theosophy. But she had died, and the new leaders of the Theosophical movement or society were were making some changes, and a lot of Theosophists weren't happy with these changes. Brother Twelve being one of them. So he left and he really advocated, you know, going back to Blavatsky's teachings. He was like a hardcore theos- uh, Blavatsky fanboy. And part of theosophy is this idea of the ascended masters. They're, they're these ethereal beings that live on this other plane of, of um, consciousness and they have all the knowledge of the world. They've been, they originally came from Atlantis when Atlantis sunk. Um, these dudes started the mystery schools afterwards where they taught all this sacred knowledge that Atlanteans had. They were very um, special people, the Atlanteans. So a lot of, essentially Brother 12's whole thing comes down to knowledge from Atlantis. And so he woke up one night, it was 1924. He woke up actually over a series of three nights and learned that the Ascended Masters had this big task for him, that he was going to transition humanity into the sixth sub-race of the fifth root race, which was also the age of Aquarius. Probably the most famous concept of theosophy that you know about is the root races. (laughs) I always, every time I'm like writing Brother 12 stuff, I'm thinking of that song. Um, The root races are like the most important concept of theosophy, I think. So it's this idea of humanity has passed through the series of evolution, spiritual, physical evolutions over millions and millions and millions of years, starting with the first root race. Each root race has seven sub races and there are seven root races total. Um, at Brother 12's time, they were living in the fifth root race, the sixth and seventh were going to be in the future. And essentially, you start with the Polarian root race, they evolved into the Hyperborean root race, who evolved into the Lemurians, who evolved into the Atlanteans. And then the fifth root race, which was the greatest and best of them all, was the Aryan root race. Um, this stuff got quite uh, connected into certain elements of Nazi Germany as well. Um so Brother 12 believed that he would be transitioning humanity into the sixth subrace of that Aryan root race, also the age of Aquarius. So he started up the Aquarian Foundation, this like movement slash cult um, where a lot of rich people joined and gave all their money to support this work. And eventually the ascended masters told him that he had to go to southern British Columbia to actually begin the work of transitioning humanity uh, because British Columbia was ideal for bodybuilding. Uh, which is both spiritual and literally physical. Um, They also refer to literal bodybuilding. So, which is a big part of the manosphere today. Like a lot of this stuff. I was going to say, there's a weird like throughput to the the alt-right stuff today too, isn't there? Oh, for sure. I think if Brother 12 was alive today, he would be totally right in front of those like testicle tanning machines. He'd be, Um, he'd be uh, selling supplements. uh, Oh, for uh... sure. Absolutely. door to door as long as there's no problem with my all beef diet that's uh <laughs> um yeah he actually yeah you had to be vegetarian if you wanted to really do good work but huh. well he was just not everyone can be right about the gains all the time i guess <laughs> no <laughs> that's right 
So he moves his organization to Southern BC and they, they set up their first property, their first settlement on Vancouver Island um, in this little area called Cedar by the Sea. And that was going to be the headquarters. So the Aquarium Foundation had chapters, actually just small chapters all around the world. They had New Zealand, um, Sweden, um, England, uh, several very active chapters in the United States as well. So you didn't actually have to be in BC. And also the BC locations were invite only. So you could be really active in the external chapters, but perhaps Brother 12 or his board of governors could invite you to actually move to BC to help with the actual work. So they set up, they ultimately ended up setting up three settlements for sure um, on Vancouver Island, DeCourcy Island, Valdez Island. Uh, and I recently found out that they were also potentially building on a fourth island, but I'm still trying to confirm that. Um, and each island had a specific purpose because it turns out the Aquarian Foundation had two core purposes. One was to transition humanity into the six subrace and the age of Aquarius. And that was work that was happening on, on DeCourcy and Valdez Island. On Vancouver Island was the the outer work, it was called. And that was for um, specifically revealing the truth uh, to the world that um, a, a secret cabal of Jews and Catholics were controlling the world and seeking world domination. So that was the other goal of the Aquarian Foundation was to get that information out any way they could. Um, and so Brother Twelve was really into like some pretty hardcore anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And he wrote a lot about it in his magazines. The Aquarium Foundation had a magazine that they published monthly for one year called The Chalice. And that's where you see a lot of this conspiracism come out, the new age spirituality come out. And Brother Twelve and the Aquarium Foundation were very what's called conspiritual. So conspirituality is a concept that refers to ideologies and worldviews that are built from a combination of new age spirituality and conspiracy theories. QAnon, again, elements of QAnon are a big part of it. And actually a lot of stuff that Brother 12 was into, elements of QAnon are really into it as well. So much stuff in his his magazine. I'll be reading his magazine. I'll be like, oh yeah, I saw this QAnon dude say exactly that on Twitter the other day. Oh, wow. So yeah, very like there's this long continuity. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, conspirituality is starting to gain attention now through things like QAnon, um, but its history is really not, very well understood um and the the people who came the academics who came up with the term conspirituality they talk about how it's largely a post-1990s internet movement but that pre-internet history and how conspirituality manifests off the internet in real life is there's not information known about that um not very much information known about it so brother 12 is a really good example of historic conspirituality and how it does manifest off the internet what does it actually look like so a lot of my research is taking looking at his conspirituality in his magazines his articles his books and then thinking how did they put it into practice what were they building how were they organizing themselves um how did they you know alter their landscapes to manifest this conspirituality so brother 12 and the ukraine foundation moved to bc in 1927 and then by 1933 the whole thing had fallen apart uh, because his disciples actually took him to court twice. Once in 1928, when they claimed that he, I guess it was, it was sort of like he was stealing money from them. So everybody was expected to give him essentially all their money. If you were invited to come live in BC, you had to give all your money because you had to be focused on the work and not, you know, your material possessions. And the idea was that he would use this money to buy properties and, and supplies and stuff in the name of the Aquarian Foundation. 
Turns out when he bought DeCourcy and Valdez, he bought it under his own personal name, not the Aquarian Foundation's name. Uh, and also he was taking a woman into his house of mystery, which was a very sacred space. That's where he channeled oh, the, the ascended masters. <laughs> and he was taking this woman who he claimed was a reincarnated Isis. He was reincarnated Osiris. Um, and they were channeling together in the house of mystery. Uh, and this is like 1928. Ah. So it was very, you know, it was immoral. And I all think this that's stuff. the title of the episode channeling together in the house of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, they, uh, the disciples took Brother 12 to court. Um, he fired back that um, actually, well, actually, the whole thing started. He took his, the Aquarian Foundation secretary to court. He claimed the secretary was stealing money. The secretary was like, dude, I'm actually just taking what you owe me for my work. By the way, you're actually stealing money. Um, and so anyway, Brother 12 won this court case because the secretary disappeared partway through the trial. Um, so the whole thing was dropped. Disappeared or so, was disappeared? I don't know. Remains oh. to be seen. <laughs> I'm just um, asking questions. <laughs> of course. Yes. Yeah. It really yeah. makes you think. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, you know, he did talk about, Brother 12 did talk about ethereally assassinating people. The idea was that you would assassinate their their spirit and then eventually their body would die. But maybe he just skipped the spirit part with um, Robert England. I don't know. Yeah, the rest of us discovered grad school for that purpose. But they, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first court case. And then, you know, Brother 12 wins and they're still doing their thing. Um and then the second court case came up in 1932 for the same reason. The disciples were like, dude, you're still stealing money from us. We're not actually doing anything. Like you promised us all this grand work was going to happen. It's just not happening. Um, so, you know, the disciples never stopped believing in the work. They just stopped believing that he could lead the work. Uh, also, they were being treated like absolute shit um, by him and his then partner, who was not the same house of mystery lady. This was a new mystery lady. Um, Madam Z, her name is was so the the disciples took him to court again and in this case they won because he and madam Z fled, um disappeared he went and died a few years later um and so that is essentially the brother 12 story but the popular side of the story is as we mentioned the earlier two is the hidden gold because he would often ask people when they were giving him money to give him money in bars of gold or coins of gold and he would store them around the the properties the and, stories and go uh so listener, a lot of the popular is, stories are for the listener bars of gold are um are bitcoin of the 1920s um that uh uh the so the the far right bitcoiners uh were uh, uh far right gold people back in the day although i think there's still gold <laughs> exactly. gold and silver i think is still a thing isn't it that's uh yeah I think gold actually, buggery the is still right a thing today. on the all right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. is yeah yeah for sure um, along with all the same anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism and all this stuff, um, Freemasonry stuff. So, um, yeah, so he, everybody knows about the, the gold or locally people know about the stories of the hidden gold and that's what's been popularized in books and, and shows and stuff. But nobody ever asks why he asked for gold. Like, why wouldn't he just keep his money in the bank? Um, and that's where I come in as the, the nerd and I say the more interesting story is that why question. And it's because he didn't trust the banks because he thought they were being controlled by Jews. Um, and so that conspiracist element is really, really interesting. And 
the the starkest example of his conspiracism are the gun forts. He ordered gun forts to be built around um, at least oh. two of the properties. Um, subtle, very very subtle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and what's interesting, at least for me, is so there was the um, the Vancouver Island property was was the conspiracist property that was the reserved for people who were doing the work of exposing the cabal of of Jews and Catholics. De Corsi and Valdez were the spiritual islands. That's where the work for transitioning humanity was happening. But the the gun forts were built on De Corsi and Valdez and not on Vancouver Island, at least not that we know of. So it's it's kind of interesting as to why, thinking about why did he build these conspiracist elements on the spiritual islands, but not on the other conspiracist um, islands. So 19 by 1932, he was already stockpiling guns in 1927. 1932 he ordered these um stone gun forts to be built as protection against the government um which government i don't know the canadian government was keeping their eye on him but also this cabal might have been watching him presumably the globalists um, was what he that's, yeah yes, the world that's economic right, the, forum isn't yeah, that yeah. The, isn't it? yeah yeah yep exactly <laughs> the league of so nations so i i think that's oh he does talk about the league of nations oh yeah yeah oh for sure of course he does um all these like literally all these very popular far right conspiracy theories today you can find examples of in his his writings it's wild Fascinating. uh he also tried to interfere with a presidential election uh in 1928 <laughs> the um the american presidential election was on and the democratic nominee alfred smith was a catholic um i think it was the first uh catholic democratic nominee that there was um brother 12 obviously being anti-catholic did not like that so he actually attempted to form a third party called the protestant protective league to get a a third um presidential a third party nominee in um thomas heflin who was uh considered as an unofficial spokesperson for the kkk he was not a good person and so obviously brother 12 loved him and so brother 12 through the protestant protective league actually um networked a little bit with the KKK and the militant Freemasons to get this word out against Catholics and this cabal that was happening um, to try to disrupt that presidential election, which didn't end up happening. Um, so yeah, the, the Brother 12 story is, is kind of wacky. And then when he uh, fled, when he and Madam Z fled as well, there's, can't confirm it was him, but somebody essentially tried to destroy one of the properties and rumors have mm -hmm. it, it was Brother 12 on his way out blew up his own ship, tore down a bunch of structures, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. And so, this is the subject of your dissertation. It is, yes. Looking at how a, a few different elements, like looking at that pseudoarch, like I mentioned, a lot of this information that he based his beliefs on were allegedly came from Atlantis. Um, so, you know, thinking about that pseudoarch influence on his life, uh, but then also looking at this element of conspirituality and because it's largely considered today as an internet-based thing, looking at how it actually manifests off the internet how does it impact people's lives um and then also looking at his impact on indigenous sites as well they built on top of a couple of their um settlements were partially on top of archaeological sites first nations archaeological sites and they incorporated that a little bit into their um their, oh, wow. the new age side of their beliefs wow. uh but they also used actual archaeological material shell midden as a, a construction material so they made mm. their own concrete on uh de Corsi island valdez i'm still looking into but they made their own concrete and they used shell midden from the sites oh, wow. within that concrete um so i'm also kind of interested in beyond just the practical element because you know it was a decent aggregate 
uh, was there also a spiritual element as well to the use of that shelmet? And um, and and today, can spiritual groups, far right groups, uh, pseudo arcs, you know, they also have impacts on uh, First Nations archaeological sites intellectually, but physically as well. So that's also part of it. I'm really looking forward to reading this uh, dissertation and yeah, totally. And so, the resulting book. So. so yeah, exactly. So so are you going to go and actually do some field work at the at the sites themselves? Yeah. Oh wow. I am. That's... Yeah. So. Uh, three islands. Uh, the fourth one, I still have to uh, figure out. But um, so one of the islands, the Vancouver Island property, not much to do there. Like I just I'm really interested in the spatial organization. Yep. So I, I'll just go, you know, handheld GPS and start marking out some stuff um, on DeCourcy. I'd like to use LIDAR um, because there are some elements, some stuff there that are, are really overgrown by like Salal and Shrub that I'd like to get a clearer view of. Uh, and also just try to find more of the gun forts. Um, so I've seen one that's sort of still standing. I know where another one was. There was a third one somewhere. I don't know where that is, but also just curious, you know, are there other stuff around? And again, to like map out some stuff, um, also make some 3D models. I'd like to do some like terrestrial LIDAR, make some 3D models. And then on Valdez Island, there's no standing structures. So DeCourcy and uh, Cedar, there are still standing cabins and houses and whatnot. Valdez, there aren't, but there is, um, we know at least one cabin foundation outline is there. So I'd like to go excavate and get an idea of the layout of the cabin, um, what kind of material goods are in there. And then again, use LIDAR, maybe some GPR, see if I can find the footprints of the other cabins that were built there and get an idea of layout and also uh, look for more gun forts. Fascinating. That's uh, that's That sounds like really kind of, Totally trippy, but really fun field work. Like <laughs> it really does. <laughs> well, Ken, um, my beady reptilian eyes are looking at a, a half-finished bottle of Covassier, and I don't know about you, but this skin is really starting to, to scrape against my uh, my uh, lizard skin. And so yeah. I, we've we've kept uh, Stephanie up, uh, I think probably rather late. And so I, I wonder if we should uh, should call it. I, I think so, and and Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. This was a, yes, thank you. Uh, this was a great conversation, and and uh, I I the brother twelve thing. I like I'm going to be like thinking about the, I like yeah. I can't wait till you start getting stuff out on this because just Absolutely. like it's totally totally bizarre, but like so cool. Like it's uh it's just and I mean uh, yeah yeah. So the, the this whole story is kind of kind of great, and and uh, thank you for sharing all the information you have, and and for and for also the work that you're doing. Um, just as being kind of a public figure about uh, about pseudarchaeology and and uh, um, kind of being out there and and uh, doing the work that you know uh, people like me that are just don't really want to engage with in in any in any con uh, conduce or <coughs> constructive way. But uh, um, and so uh, your website the... and your um, Twitter handle, I think. Yeah. Can we so get that one more time. Yep. So bonesstonesandbooks.com. That's all one word, mm -hmm. and then at cult c-u-l-t underscore archaeo a-r-c-h-a-e-o at cult underscore archaeo that's the the x or twitter handle um and uh so you can find all stephanie's stuff and uh you should actually you can find her sapiens article uh online that would be open as well um and we'll so put in the we show notes too link it in the show notes and we might uh we might link a couple of the articles that you'd mentioned as well the uh um uh, was it the oxygen of amplification the oxygen amplification yeah yeah, yeah. i'll find the link i'll send you the link to it oh awesome thank That's you fantastic very much. uh yeah. so yeah so thank you again stephanie for coming was... uh from from the other coast to uh to the Brunswick archaeology podcast yeah. 
Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us uh, from West of the Rockies. We uh, we really appreciate it. <laughs> we do exist west of the Rockies. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having me and for for letting me blabber on about a whole bunch of different things, but especially Brother Twelve. Man, he's so weird, and I love talking about Brother Twelve. But yeah, I, so honestly, Ken and I uh, this earlier we were we were texting about having you on, and uh, and Ken basically texted, "Are you have you been reading this Brother Twelve stuff?" And I said, "Yes," as I had the Wikipedia article and you know the string of things open <laughs> yeah. about him. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, he's totally, a weird story. Yeah, very cool. So thanks yeah. again, Stephanie. Thank you yeah, so much, Stephanie. Have a great night. Thanks, guys. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. I think it's time for hit pieces. That's right, Ken. Uh, we've got some uh, a number of like it's it's been a really good year, I think, for hit pieces. It has. Um, in the Northeast, we've we've got a bunch of good publications. And so I'm sort of thrilled to introduce this one because it's by Al Hansinger as the lead author with uh, Arthur Anderson, second author, and me as the last author. And uh, part of the thrill here is that Al Hansinger was a grad student of mine who was also in the field with me down east. And anytime, as you know, I think from having the experience of uh, turning part of your thesis into a publication is that this is the ideal uh, cycle, right? And so Al's just had out in Archaeology of Eastern North America. That's the 2023 edition. Um, so that's volume 51, page 95 to 107. Lithic procurement in the Quadi region, Washington County, Maine, a view from the Rosing Falls site. And so uh, in this paper, Al uses thin section petrography, X-ray powder diffraction, low power microscopy, and high resolution digital photography um, a bunch of lithics from the intertidal zone at Reversing Falls to basically point out that most of the lithic material from Little Woodland is very local. How local, you may ask? It is so local that I was walking over, apparently, a likely lithic procurement area for several years before Al joined the project, <laughs> whomped it with a rock hammer, thin sectioned that sucker, and found out that, yep, same rock. Same rock. Very cool. The very well done, Al. And Al is currently, uh, he's going to be studying a PhD at uh, UMass Amherst, uh, right for Christmas, but is currently an archaeologist for VTrans. That's, fa that's fantastic. Which is the Vermont uh, trans trans transportation, it's the highways for Vermont, whatever the, yeah, like whatever DOT the or whatever. Is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So congratulations, uh, congratulations to Al. That's great. Uh, publishing your thesis is a, is a, is a fantastic, uh, Fantastic achievement, and and pretty soon after he finished too, eh? Like he only finished a year or so ago. That's right. Yeah, he was a um a pandemic. Uh, he wrote his thesis during the pandemic. Gave a great credit to him, I think, and turned it out real well. And uh, we love to see this uh, this outcome. That's perfect. Um, yeah. so the next one up here is another hit from the far northeast. Um, so this is uh, uh Catherine Patton, who's at University of Toronto, Arthur Anderson at University of New England, and David Black. Um, uh, who is an honorary research professor. Is that his title? Uh, I think it is, yeah. At uh, University of New Brunswick. It's called The Most Delicious Fish, Toward Archaeology of the Green Sea Urchin, 
Strong, Stronglio centrotus uh, drobachiensis on the coastal northeast of North America. And that's in the Journal of Island and Coastal Archaeology. Uh, and that just came out this year. I think it was published online in June, um, or it was accepted on June in June. I think it just went up online about a month or two ago. Um, and this is an, uh, an article that looks at the distribution of green sea urchin um, in shellfish assemblages from ancestral Wabanaki sites. Um, and in particular, from the Quadi region of New Brunswick and Maine, um, which is the traditional homeland of the Pescoda Makati. Um, and so this uh, this paper draws on historical, e ecological, and archaeological data to argue that uh, sea urchins were harvested at specific points in the annual tidal cycle. Um, and it suggests that uh, the abundance of sea urchin in archaeological collections probably changed through time, uh, reflecting changes in local environment, um, climate changes, and uh, and the changing ways that Pescoda Makati were living on the landscape at that time. Uh, so that's a really great article, um, and it's in the Journal of Island and Coastal Archaeology. Um, and then our next one... KP, Arthur, and Dave. That's a uh, yeah. great paper. And it's sort of cool that kind of riffs on... Um... They've been doing a lot of good work with uh, comp samples from uh, shell bearing sites. That's right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of really detailed work looking, um, basically screening uh, shell middens and shelves through increasingly Graduated small seas. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I was, uh, Catherine was actually just starting to go through those column samples when I um, uh, was, was sort of packing my stuff up in the lab at uh, U of T. So. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, I'm not um, and then our... crazy as far as we know yet, listener. They're not they're not shaking <laughs> sieves and, and sort of you put the lab in the coconut and then doing a little a little maraca thing with the sieves. Well, yeah. it does help get it down through the uh, especially when you get down to like you know one sixteenth and smaller. That's uh, that's it's always true. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and this one is uh, an article that I found uh, in the popular culture. Um, uh, this is not uh, New Brunswick archaeology or even far northeastern archaeology. Um, it is actually uh, uh, Eastern archaeology um, uh, of the old world and uh, and is a topic near and dear to Gabe's heart, actually. Um, and that is that... Uh, um, well, not in... just my heart. <laughs> at uh, Karahan Tepe mm -hmm. in uh, in is a mesolith uh, Mesolithic temple in Turkey. They've actually discovered a one of the largest uh, and oldest statues um, in uh, uh, depicting a an anthropomorphic person. Um, and so this is a gentleman um, standing quite tall uh, uh, and uh, groping a very graphic phallus. In fact, the first article that I clicked on um, included no pictures of the uh, of the of the statue, presumably to uh, to, to preserve the dignity of the reader. Um, but uh, 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 we we I I caught this uh, this caught my eye and I sent it to Gabe in part because uh, Gabe has actually uh, published a paper with David Black on the distribution of um, phallic effigies uh, in the far northeastern. Let's not exclude him. And Matt Betts, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, phallic effigies in the archaeological record. Uh, however, these ones uh, uh, actually date quite uh, some time ago. Uh, these the site is somewhere around. Um, close to 11,500 years old. Um, and so this is significant uh, just because of the monumental architecture and um, uh, uh, the the sort of largesse and the oldest uh, human statue of its kind found uh, um, found to date, which is uh, kind of so neat. So Ken, would you say it's a, the article was about a long time ago? <laughs> <laughs> I 
Well, whatever yeah. it was, it took a deft hand to pull off. That's the important. Uh, that's the important thing. And so, so Ken, the thing I think we're gonna plug was the Eastern States Archaeological Federation is coming up. We've been sort of traveling through time as we do these, but the uh, in uh, basically starting the week of October twenty fifth, uh, a bunch of students and I um, and other archaeologists will be on an expedition to Ocean City, Maryland, to the Eastern States Archaeological Federation meeting, and we're hopefully going to have some. Um, some we're calling it live content or uh, short pieces from from ESAF. The ESAF meeting is always fun, and um, it's uh, one of the. I think the great things with ESAF is it really is one of the last sort of meetings that's got uh, CRM, academic, and avocational archaeologists all at the same meeting, really sharing a bunch of good information. Um, and it's it's just always a blast, and so uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And we'll have some updates for the listener from yeah, so uh, what, live from Ocean City. Yeah, and so when the listener hears this episode, um, uh, it will be airing as uh, as as Gabe and his colleagues and students are ensconced in uh, in academic uh, learning in uh, in Ocean City. That's absolutely right. Uh, not Ocean City, New Jersey, but Ocean City, Maryland. Yeah, yeah, which I. I'm guessing is in a similar state of decay, but uh, probably I, still. I, yeah, probably still has some redeeming price, aspects. Yeah, well, the hotel price would be one of them, which is uh, <laughs> well south of what I expected it to cost. So. <laughs> even but, even yeah, with the exchange uh, rate, it's uh, it's affordable. Yeah, it was it was funny. I I emailed our dean of arts asking for a little money to pay for uh, undergraduate hotel rooms and. You could tell from the first paragraph he had this thought that no, it's going to be a big ask. And then when I asked for two hundred and twenty dollars, there was a sort of you could you could feel the sigh of relief through the email where he said, <laughs> "I don't think that'll be a problem, Gay." <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, well, and listener, I think that's... I think Ken and I are looking at a half finished bottle of Courvoisier. Yep, and uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, it might have been finished two days ago for where we are in the in the flat circle of time right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think listener what you've been listening to is ken and i uh in real time deciding that we are not in real time and we should be <laughs> and it is really time to sign off and uh <laughs> and so we we hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned yep. for the next fortnight where you're going to get a sequel uh where we're going to explore more about pseudo-archaeology and uh we hope that this topic actually generates some buzz uh, with the listenership and and uh, and we look forward to reading emails from you um, about maybe at even some of your uh, your favorite stories um, or myths that you maybe have heard about archaeology in the province and if you've got questions about those and and perhaps we can answer them. That's right, um, and thank you, listener, and thanks so much to uh, Stephanie Hallover for being our uh, guest of honor this uh, this pod, and we will see you in a fortnight with Daryl Kalman. Yeah, and uh, safe travels to ESAF, Gabe, and, and uh, have lots of fun this week. Thanks, Ken. You don't need to worry about that. We'll uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye, listener. Have a good night.